Hello, everyone. It's me, Joe. Strange Sound, episode 20. Two zero. We've, we've made it to 20. My goodness. We're almost old enough to drink. This podcast is almost old enough to drink. If uh, you can equate 20 weekly episodes to 20 years, yes. It's a bit of a leap. Anyway, um... I seem to be in kind of an up mood today. I just recorded an episode of This is Big Green, our other podcast, the Big Green podcast, and that's a lot sillier than this one. So I'm still uh, speaking in my This is Big Green voice. So uh, let me get all serious again, because this, again, is strange sound, quite a different matter. Um talking politics, talking public policy, talking things that really piss me off and things that don't, but um, are worth considering. So uh, another wonderful week in America. Very, very difficult time um, that we're all going through. Uh, I, I don't want to spend another moment on this podcast without once again, bringing to mind all these people that are out of work and out of luck during this COVID-19 catastrophe that is mostly the product of the incompetence of our leadership. Um, really entirely the product of it. If, if, you, if you broaden it out beyond Trump, Trump's role in it is enough, but when you consider the degree to which we've been asleep at the switch um, in the face of this type of um, threat, not only to public health and safety, but to um, the economy of the country and of the world, um, it's just it's a remarkable failure. And it's something that could have been prevented. It's something that is known, not not COVID-19 itself, but the threat of a pandemic and the effects of a pandemic. These are things that have been known to policymakers for decades. That knowledge has been with us for decades. And previous administrations have set in place um, early warning systems and preventative measures and all kinds of things. Not to the degree that really um, the threat warrants, but there was some recognition of the fact that we needed to be ready for this and we needed to nip it in the bud and anticipate it and have rapid response teams in place and to cooperate with other governments across the world um, to make certain that an epidemic doesn't turn into a pandemic and do what we can. And then, you know, it, failing that, respond in an appropriate way provide the resources to respond in an appropriate way. And to a minor extent, 
previous administrations, including the you know Obama and George W. Bush administrations, uh, the, there were people within both of those administrations that recognized the threat and that um, did some lay some groundwork um, with regard to that. I would say not enough, but <laughs> I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I mean, I really think that a country that spends $750 billion on the military every single freaking year, which I've mentioned in previous podcasts, um, including episode 19 probably, um, should be able to take some of that money, some proportion of that money, and devote it to this problem that has killed over 130,000 of us and is sickened many, many hundreds of thousands more and has made a total shambles of our rickety economy. Not the greatest economy in the history of the world. It's a rickety economy that just, was just sort of crawling up out of a hole and it, and this has knocked it back down into that hole and an even deeper hole frankly, a deeper hole than any of us has ever fallen into. It's affecting all of us. But it's affecting people who are the most vulnerable first and most, as usual. Workers on the on the bottom rung are being just devastated by this thing. In more ways than one. I mean, a lot of the essential workers are workers on the on the low end. You know, people who work in uh, meat packing plants and agriculture and all these uh, industries that are considered essential to um, public health and to keeping people fed and to keeping people supplied. You know, uh, these people are, and not to mention medical workers. These people are being brutalized right now, and. The folks on the on the bottom end of the economy who are who are who were thrown out of work because of this are struggling. They're facing a deadline at the end of this month, whereby they will lose the federal enhancement to unemployment, the six hundred dollar additional um, that the feds dropped into unemployment insurance. Um, they're gonna they're gonna lose that that weekly stipend. Um, they're going to lose they're <laughs> for a lot of folks, the, um, moratorium on, on rent, um, is going to run out. Um, and, and people are going to face catastrophe. We could see millions of people if Congress doesn't act. And so far they haven't, at least the Senate hasn't, we could see millions of people thrown out of their homes, millions of people becoming unhoused as they say now. Um, because of this. And it's just outrageous. We're not doing anything about it. And we need to do something about it. So I have to say, before I talk about anything else on this episode, I have to say, please, contact your congressman. Contact your congress member, I'm sorry. Congressperson. Tell them that they need to push forward some um, paycheck protection um, measures, some um, renter either assistance or protection or both 
Um, we need to keep people in their homes. We need to give people the means by which they can survive. And we need to do it now. Um, particularly if you live in a red state, contact your senators and tell them that they need to push the this legislation forward. As imperfect as the HEROES Act is, they need to push it forward and they need to you know, consider other measures as well. But they need to stop sitting on their hands because this is ridiculous. Uh, okay, that's, uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, um, and, you know, this is a huge problem, people. You know. You know better than I do. What am I telling you? That you don't already know. I think you already know this. Just between you and me. Um, okay, so this week, as I'm sure you've heard um, quite a bit if you watch as much dumbass television as I do, um, Representative John Lewis died this week, um, civil rights icon. You've, you've heard the tributes, I'm sure. He was a great man and a good man. Um, he was very ill and lost his life this this week. Um, and you're seeing a lot of tributes to him, and that's great. Um, I you know he's he more than deserves it. The sad thing is, and I'm sure you'll see tributes coming in from. Republicans, as well as Democrats, um, from people all across the political spectrum. But let's bear in mind, okay, if you see tributes rolling in from, say, George W. Bush or anyone associated with the current administration or anyone associated with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, whether it be Republican members of the Supreme Court or (laughs) Republican appointed members of the Supreme Court or um, people who are instrumental in bringing that contingent into being. Um, Just uh, prepare yourself for some massive hypocrisy. Because it's worth remembering, and I'm not going to go through uh, John Lewis's record. You can, again, once again, I say this almost every single episode. You can hear that type of material practically anywhere else and much better than I can possibly render it. Um, If you want to learn about John Lewis, um, just look up John Lewis. He was a fantastic fellow. Um, But part of what John Lewis spent so much blood, sweat, and tears on when he was a young man was the Voting Rights Act. And I think it's um, worth pointing out here on the occasion of the passing of John Lewis um, and the um, coincidentally the same time the passing of uh, Reverend... Um, Reverend Vivian, um, another civil rights icon, um, that the Voting Rights Act has essentially been gutted. And we are seeing the results of that. 
And it's because we have a conservative Supreme Court. Now, the the gutting of the Civil, Civil Rights Act happened in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder. That case um, decided in 2013 basically removed the provision from the uh, Voting Rights Act, Section 5, um, that provided for preclearance of any changes to vote, um, election law in key states, and they identified the states. And it's worth worth pointing out, too, that there are probably about a dozen states um, that, that were affected, including pretty much every one of the deep south states. I mean, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, um, Virginia, uh, North Carolina, Florida, and it's, it's worth saying uh, South Dakota, California, and New York had some counties covered by Section 5. So, um, oh, also Alaska. Um, the entire state was covered by Section 5. So, you know, a pattern of discriminatory election law, um, it was determined um, in the passage of, of the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s that... Um, these states, because of their pattern and practice over the years, would be required to, you know, there was a condition on passing any new voter restrictions in those states that those measures would have to be cleared before they could become law. And the Supreme Court saw fit to strike that down. The Roberts Court saw fit to strike that down. Now that's that's um Shelby County v Holder um back on June 25th, 2013. Now <laughs> that's uh Shelby County um Alabama um was was the plaintiff in that case. Now it it's worth saying too that once that happened many of these states began passing restrictive measures on on voting rights. Um, voter ID laws, um, cutting back on uh, early voting, cutting back on polling places. Um, I know the state of Mississippi, I believe, closed a bunch of registration sites. Um, they were located in post offices. Uh, I believe this is Mississippi a couple of years ago. Um, they, they just eliminated them <laughs> and uh, made it that much harder to register to vote. Um, just this past week, the Supreme Court, they essentially um, allowed a, a law that was passed in Florida to stand that restricted registration of um, convicted felons after they've served their their sentence 
um, after they were released from prison, it made registration to vote contingent upon um, their fulfilling, um, paying any outstanding fees that they may owe as a result of their of their legal trouble, of their incarceration. Which, mind you, uh, there's there's no real way for a um, convicted felon to know exactly how many outstanding fees or or um, costs uh, are are necessarily um, stacked up against them. There's there's no like central database that's going to tell them, oh well, you owe you know this much to to this entity and this much to that entity. Um, it's really you could you could owe you know twenty dollars to somebody, and if you register, if you try to register to vote, that's a violation of the law. Now, mind you, in uh, in twenty eighteen, um, there was a ballot measure that passed overwhelmingly to reinstate voting voting privileges for um, convicted felons. Um, after they served their sentence. Um, it was a lopsided victory for this measure. And the Florida state legislature and their grisly governor uh, has decided to um, add this provision to it after the fact, even though the people of Florida overwhelmingly decided that convicted felons should be able to um, vote after they've served their sentence and been released. Um, that it was something that a broad spectrum of Floridians agreed with, and yet somehow their elected government decided, well, we're going to add this provision to it just so that we can screw people at the bottom of the ladder, um, intimidate them to the point where they won't want to register to vote because they don't want to be sent back to prison for violating this law. And again, this is a law that if the Voting Rights Act that, you know, John Lewis bled for, if the Voting Rights Act had not been gutted by the Supreme Court back in 2013, I believe this law would have been subject, at least at some level, to preclearance. This type of law would be. Um, And... It's possible that that wouldn't have applied in this specific case, but this is the type of case that that um, would be subject to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, Florida was had certain counties that were subject to preclearance. So I don't know whether a statewide measure like this would be would be subject. Um, to preclearance, I, I don't know. I'm not sure how that works legally. But in any case, this is the sort of thing that the Voting Rights Act was designed to prevent because this will disproportionately affect people of color and people on the lower end of the spectrum in, in terms of income. It's really disgusting. But, uh, yeah, so uh, when you hear those tributes flowing in, just remember, um, this is, (laughs) 
this is what these people are about, right? This is what the Republican Party is about, particularly now. Um, they are about keeping people from voting. And they've demonstrated this time and time again, particularly since 2013, when Shelby V. Holder was decided. Um, they've just been completely unleashed about this. Um, there have been some good books written about this. And I'm, again, I'm not an expert, but I can tell you um, this is just a, a, a favorite hobby horse of the new extreme right Republican Party. Um, they just love this stuff. So when you hear uh, one of their number praising John Lewis, um, laugh up your sleeve, <laughs> call them out because <laughs> they're a bunch of freaking hypocrites. And, you know, look, how did we get here, right? Why was it that in 2013 the Voting Rights Act was gutted instead of expanded? You know, personally, I think what they should have done if they thought it was unfair was make the make the Voting Rights Act, uh, the preclearance condition, apply to every single state in the union. If you're if if you're implementing a law that affects people's access to the ballot in some way, that it should be scrutinized, and if it's if it's determined to have some kind of discriminatory effect or detrimental effect to um, someone's ability to vote then it should be struck down. There should be a right to vote. Right? And the Voting Rights Act essentially provided for that, even in, even in the limited context that, it, um, that uh, Section 5 applied to. You know, some dozen states. I think in, you know, 2013, if we had the right type of Supreme Court, maybe they would have broadened it. Maybe they would have said, okay, you know, maybe it's not fair to single out these states anymore. Maybe we should just have it apply to the entire country. That would be fair. Instead of just knocking the thing out and saying, well, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race and pretend like, you know, racism doesn't exist because you don't see race. You know, people tell John Roberts he's white and he believes them because the police call him sir. Oh, boy. Um, and again, why do we have the Roberts court? Why did we have a court that would decide this case in this particular way that would basically undo, you know, a lot of the hard work that John Lewis did, you know, marching and getting clubbed by the cops and, you know, getting hauled away and thrown in jail, him and thousands of others, many of whom, you know, languished in jail and died nameless. Um, why do we have a Supreme Court that would do that? It's because we've allowed the Republican Party to run things repeatedly over the course of the last 
couple of decades. We allowed them to take office in 2000 because, well, you know, we were um, disgruntled with Gore and God knows it couldn't stand Lieberman. Um, but again, you know, if we had elected um, Gore in 2000, would we have the Roberts Court? Probably not. Unlikely. Extremely unlikely. We had an opportunity to, to move it distinctly to the uh, left um, during that election cycle. We missed that opportunity. Once again, during the Obama administration, we had the opportunity to um, institute a um, left-leaning majority on the Supreme Court. We didn't. We could have changed the character of the Supreme Court for decades to come. We didn't because we didn't have the votes, because we didn't go out and vote. Again, elections are important. They're not the most important thing. Political organizing is far more important. But that doesn't mean that elections aren't important. They are. We need to keep these people from coming back because every time they come back, they're worse. I want you to picture for a moment what it would be like if Joe Biden were elected president in November. I know no one wants to think about this, but <laughs> just just imagine. So imagine he gets elected president. And Immediately, the right wing of the Republican Party, which is essentially the entire Republican Party, will begin pummeling him and trying to obstruct him. Now, if they've got any brains, if the Democrats win the Senate as well as win the presidency, if they've got any brains, they will do away with the filibuster because the filibuster is completely meaningless now. So, um, do away with it. Hopefully make one, maybe two Supreme Court appointments in the first couple of years. The thing is, when you're starting at the center, like the Democrats tend to do, and like the, um, particularly the senatorial Democrats, there are some on the left, um, at least nominally, in the Democratic caucus in the Senate, um, mostly they're centrists. When you're starting in the center and you're trying to find consensus with Republicans, um, the Republicans in the Senate are hard to the right. There's very few exceptions. Uh, and the exceptions are only people that sort of like faint to the center a little bit. If the Democrats in the Senate are making compromises with the Republicans in the Senate, those compromises are going to be way to the right of center because the Republicans kind of live where, um, you know, Tom Cotton lives. They live in Cotton Town, right? These people are extremists. They're extreme right-wingers. And you're going to see a resurgence of the sort of um, 
grievance politics that you still you still see even though they run the place. If they're knocked out of power, you're going to see it come back with a vengeance just like it did, you know, in the first couple of years of the Obama administration. Um, we have to make certain that if there is a Biden victory and if the Democrats take the Senate, we have to make sure that these people um, have some spine when they're dealing with this, that they don't get cold feet, that they don't um, try to look like they're being, you know, they're they're making an effort to be bipartisan or fair or whatever. Um, because understand, <laughs> there's nothing intrinsically wrong with compromise, right? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with like, coming to an arrangement between two parties. But if you're dealing with a party that is so far to the right that it is technically not even a parliamentary party in the traditional sense anymore, um, the Republican Party is is so reactionary now that it's it really doesn't even fit in into any any recognizable category as far as like parliamentary parties around the world in in states that allow for elections right <laughs> there's just no comparison i mean these people are in total denial of climate change they are they're just massively conservative so if we spend too much energy if our leaders spend too much energy in trying to um, either appease them or come to some kind of compromise position with them, or if they if they decide to keep the filibuster, like people like Chris Coons have occasionally toyed with, um, suggesting, um, they seem to have backed away from that a little bit, but I wouldn't be surprised if it comes back. Um, if they If they talk about maintaining the filibuster, uh, for certain types of nominations, um, this is when we really need to push these people hard. Now, it's just, you know, just as likely what would happen is that either, you know, Biden would win and and the Senate would remain in Republican hands or Biden would lose and the Senate would remain in Republican hands or maybe Biden would lose and the Senate would end up in Democratic hands. It's kind of hard to say. Right, it's likely that it would be, um, that it wouldn't be that last option, but hard to say. Hard to say. We don't know what's going to happen. All we know is that we need to get the Republicans out of power, um, and then just deal with whatever the consequent situation is. We have to bear in mind that they are going to come back and they are going to come back hard and they are going to fight to block any kind of progressive legislation moving forward, any kind of progressive appointments moving forward, and they will try to turn the 2022 midterm elections into some kind of referendum like the 2010 elections, midterms. Um to try to take back the House, take back the Senate, and put the Democratic president in a box, um, just like they they did with Obama. Um, 
People need to stay focused. So again, that's not the most important political project that people would be involved in. Um, From this point forward, the electoral project is important. It's not as important as the organizing and the um, and the activism on the ground, not by a long shot, but it's still something that we can't neglect, right? Because we'll just find ourselves right back where we started from, and the next generation of Republicans are going to be worse than this one. They will be worse than Trump. Tom Cotton is worse than Trump. There are any number of currently sitting either Republican senators, Republican governors and lieutenant governors, Republican Congress people who are worse than Trump. And they will be calling the shots if they gain power again. Can we keep them out of power forever? Well, who knows? <laughs> we can try. We can try. Because we have to recognize that as problematic as the Democratic Party is, the Republican Party is going to kill us. They're killing us. They're killing us with COVID. They're going to kill us with climate change because they don't believe in it. They certainly don't believe in doing anything about it. They're giving away the store on on just about every single issue. Um, We need to get them out. We need to keep them out. And if... Um, John Lewis's passing reminds us of anything. It should be that, you know, these legislative victories that people march for and push for and get clubbed by police for and, you know, do all the hard work to bring about, they are very fragile. They're only as, they're only as, as strong as our commitment to, um, keeping the the scoundrels out of power (laughs) who will gut them, you know, who will appoint judges um, that will sort of strike down progressive legislation, who will prevent progressive legislation from seeing the light of day in the first place. That's what we got to do. I know I sound like a broken record. Uh, my apologies, but, uh, I really am concerned about this because it just keeps getting worse. It keeps getting worse in order to make things much better than they are. We need to first stop them from getting worse because they can get a lot worse. As bad as they are right now, they can get a lot worse. And if we're asleep at the switch, With regard to elections, that's what's going to happen. Anyway, that's all I got to say in that matter. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Um, If you want to leave a voice message, um, I will be happy to play it on the show. just go to anchor.fm slash strange sound and you will find the means of doing so. Um, if you want to contact me via Twitter, I'm at strange sound pod. 
If you go to anchor.fm slash strange sound, there are links to um, our Facebook page, our YouTube page, our Twitter account. Um, you can also find us at big-green.net. Um, just click on the podcast tab and you'll see a link for Strange Sound there. Uh, be glad to hear from you. Love to hear what you have to say. Um, if you disagree with me, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Um, glad to turn this into a conversation. So you know where to find me. And I will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.